Aloha. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. If you are new to our Ohana this morning, um, we welcome you this morning. We are an expository preaching church, meaning that we preach books of the Bible verse by verse, and we've landed on chapter 13, in which we have been calling Signs of Christmas. And we've put a significant spin and twist on the Christmas story because we believe the Christmas story does not end at the birth of Jesus. Can I get a witness out there, right? However, we desire to continue to see the Christmas story in the epic narrative of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Therefore, we have landed on a significant doctrine, a doctrine that many have um, debated about, have argued about, even have splitted among other brothers and sisters in the faith, in the faith because of their personal conviction. And it's the doctrine called eschatology, the study of the end times. Now, I am born and raised from Hilo, and I have seen the movement and the dynamic of many different eschatological people who have different beliefs on an understanding on how the end times are going to be fleshed out and what that looks like. And what I want us to hold on to is what Jesus says last week in our verses with Kahu Marcus, that we should not be concerned with the time or the events, but we should remain faithful to the things that are faithful. What is it? The message of the gospel. I can promise you we can all sit down in a theological circle, and every one of us will have a different worldview of how the world is going to end. And it depends on the culture and context you grew up in. It depends on maybe a theological and doctrinal context that you grew up in. There's a millennial view of three parts that we could talk about and we could discuss and we could be passionate about. And every side of the point would have convictions and they would have great uh, argumentative scripture to support their millennial view, whether you're an amillennialist a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or even a fourth kind of view with the premillennial view called the pre-tribulation millennial view. So I want you, I know you may say, man, I don't even know what the heck you're talking about this morning, Kahu. Praise the Lord. That's what church is all about. Church is to grow together. We don't arrive until the return of Christ. And so we're speaking from a posture of really, God, we don't have it all together. But we know you have it all together, and you've given us this perfect sufficiency of your scripture that it's enough, right? An infallible word, meaning it's 100% accurate, it's correct, and the things we don't understand, we trust in you that you will make clarity, or we just trust in you, period. And we may never understand the doctrine of eschatology, but we will continue to look at you as our author and finisher of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews talks about. Here's the heart of our series. It is to identify key biblical principles concerning the ministry of Jesus Christ. Christmas, from a biblical platform, does not end at the birth of Christ, as we just stated. It continues through the earthly ministry of Jesus, as seen in the New Testament, 
and through his church today until his glorious return. Can I get a witness out there, right? So what I want us to do, I don't want to stand here letting you know that I have all the perfect answers. What I want to do is I want to give some arguments this morning on the end times. And I want you to choose for yourself scripturally on what that means for you. But as a church, I want us to unite together on one specific topic that is really the core priority of our church. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen out there? The message of the gospel. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, to a virgin birth. He was without sin. And because he was without sin, he was the perfect substitutionary atonement for us in this room. None of us could take the cross and pay the penalty for you and I, right? We needed someone pure, someone better, someone perfect. And that's the gospel we preach every Sunday. That's where we can either unite or divide on. Promise. If we're going to divide let's, or unite, let's unite on the gospel. If we're going to divide, let's divide on the gospel. Meaning, if you don't see Christ as the only Lord, the only Savior, then you're going to divide with the scriptures. Because the scriptures make much of Christ Jesus as Lord of all. Would you stand with me in the reading of God's word? As we jump to Mark 13, verse 14 to 23, in the second series and part of our series entitled Signs of Christmas. I want you to hear the words of Jesus himself, penned by the uh, disciple Mark, who was, an apostle, who was a disciple of the apostle Peter. The word of the Lord says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader what? Understand. Then let those who are in Judah, Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, not enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But, always look for those words, but, right? There's a turning point here. For the sake of the elect, that's you, believer in Christ. The sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days of this tribulation. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not what? Believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But, again, right? You hear this? Be on guard. I have told you all these things before hand. Epulekako. God, we pray that you would illuminate our thoughts today. We pray if there's any traditional practices or theology and doctrine that needs to be evaluated and be refined or even thrown away, God, that we would do that through the power of your spirit, through the sufficiency of your word. 
God, I know our minds are wrapped up in busyness. We got things in our lives that need attention. But God, I would be faithful to say that what we need is you this morning. We need you, and so your word declares who you are, who we are, and how this great drama of your narrative of the gospel is being fleshed out through your perfect atoning son, through the power of your Holy Spirit, with the word of your testimony. We love you in Jesus' mighty name. We pray, God's Ohana says loud and proud. Amen. You may be seated. If you like my family and I, we love family nights where we get to watch movies together. And one of the movies we love to watch is the sequel between National Treasure. How many of you have watched that show before, right? The main character, Ben Gates, has this connection with history, American history, and he ties in what we know as cryptic codes throughout the history to connect the dots on these specific artifacts that he is finding. He's finding to understand American history. Well, today's text is viewed in light of cryptic codes. For us to completely understand what Jesus is referring to and talking about, we must understand these cryptic codes that is in the scriptures. And the one thing that we see clearly in our text today is the topic, the abomination of desolation. If you can say that with me and humor me for a little bit, say that with me. One, two, three. The abomination of desolation. There's a few ways to read the scriptures. The wrong way to read the scripture is called an eisegetical approach. The word eisegeus means to lead into, meaning you're leading from your opinions, you're leading from your experience, you're leading from your thought process, you're leading from your traditions. None of that is wrong completely, but they're not primarily, when you look at the hermeneutics understanding of studying the scripture. What we must base our study on is not on an eisegetical approach, but what scholars call an expository or an exegetical approach. Approach. The word exegesis means to lead out of, to lead from. Therefore, what I want us to do is I want us to look at these verses in light of studying Scripture based on how God gave the Scripture to us. This is called biblical theology. You had different understandings of theology, like systematic theology, histor- history, th- historical theology, pastoral theology. What I want us to look at in all these theologies, specifically biblical theology. How is the Bible teaching us the way it was written, how to expose our verses today? So here's four ways to read Mark chapter 13. First off, Jesus is primarily speaking to his disciples. I want to say that literally. Jesus is primarily speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to real Jewish people, men, in real Jewish time, historical time, in real Jewish context and culture. In approaching this hermeneutically, expositorily, in exegesis standpoint, this means, right, this better helps us 
understand the interpretation of our text today because Jesus, hear me out, is not speaking to us today. If we're speaking strict, straight from the writings of Scripture, Jesus is not having a conversation with Zeke Tomaselli in the text. You see how strict the Bible interpretation has to be? Jesus is speaking directly, primarily, to Jewish men. Peter, James, John, Thomas, Philip. Think about the disciples, Andrew, right? These are the people God speaking. He's not speaking to Hawaiians. He's not even speaking to Americans. He's not primarily speaking to anybody else in this text. If we take the text for the text itself, he's speaking to his disciples. This is the danger of studying scripture while us thinking that it begins with us readers. The scripture does not begin with those who are reading. The scripture begins with God. Who is God talking to? His disciples. Physically, literally. That's what the text is saying. But automatically, a modern-day preacher today would say, hey, this is what God is telling us. No, we have to look at what God is telling his immediate disciples first. With this right understanding, I want you to look at verse 4. It's not on the screen, but I want you to look at verse 4, how it reminds us of the conversation Jesus is happening with his disciples. You remember from chapter 11, Jesus is having a hivala'au. He's hivala'au with these uh, brothers in the temple called the religious rulers, the scribes, the high priests, the elders, right, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. He's having this conversation. They're having a lot of debate in this temple. But now they're moving out of the temple. Last week we learned that Jesus said that he will destroy this temple... And now the conversation is not with, no longer with the Pharisees or the religious rulers of the time, but it's now an intimate conversation he's having with his followers. Are you with me? So God is having a conversation, and the topic they are talking about is the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. I want you to see in verse 15 some of the things Jesus describes to understand this topic. In verse 14, it says, But when you hear or when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, stop there. I want you to see some key factors of how Jesus describes this one little verse. First off, Jesus describes the abomination of desolation as a man, not a time, a man. We see in 2 Thessalonians that this man is a lawless man, a sinful man. He is also known later on in Revelations as the Antichrist. He would be the one, right? Right? He would be the one that he would stand in the place where the scripture says in verse 14, he should not be at. Where is that place? The temple. Are you with me today? This is who Jesus is talking about. Secondly, Jesus uses the Tanakh to explain the abomination of desolation. The Tanakh is the Old Testament Jewish Bible. It's what we see in our literal Bible today, the Christian Bible. The Tanakh breaks down in three categories. The first category is the book of Moses or the law. Second category is the book of the prophets, the former, the major, the minor. The third one is the book of writings, which deals with poetry, the books of poetry and history, and the scrolls that we see in Esther and Ruth. And Samuel, we, we see all these things going on in the Old Testament Jewish law. Then Jesus does something significant with the Tanakh. 
he points his disciples, remember not us, his disciples to the prophet book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, the Jewish people will understand why Jesus would talk about the abomination of desolation and who they were. It was like, it was like us Hawaiians who grew up in Hawaiian religion. We would know all the Hawaiian religious tales and stories because it was told to us growing up from little baby time. Are you with me? Same like with the Jewish people. They grew up learning the Tanakh, these three sections of the Old Testament. So when Jesus was talking about the abomination of desolation, it would be like us Hawaiian talking about the Obake Files book. You guys remember that growing up, right? The movies, right? Morgan's Corner, the Madame Pele on on, on, on uh, Saddleback Road. You, you, guys know, you guys understand where we're, running, where we're talking about? Same thing. This worldview was very similar in the time of the Jewish people. They understood the abomination of desolation based on their stories and telling of the prophetic Daniel. I want us to break down this, all right? In verse 14, the Tanakh is clear that the abomination of desolation is found in Daniel 9, Chapter 11 and chapter 12. Look at chapter 9. Verse 27. It's up on the screen. And he says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now who's he? Keep reading. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of what? Abomination. All right? In Hebrew, that word means idol. In Greek, That word means idol, all right? The idol, the abomination, the antichrist, the antichrist shall come one who makes desolate. What does desolate mean? Empty, all right? Until the decreed ends is poured out on the desolator. Another word for the abominator. Is everyone on the same page with me? Daniel gives us clarity in this interpretation. This is where the cryptic codes come in. Jesus and Daniel connects the dots. We see that, number one, Daniel gives us a time period of the abomination of desolation. This is called the tribulation period. Mark 13, verses 1 to 23, as we learned last week and this week, is clear on this period. Seven years will go by during the tribulation You may say, where do you get seven years from? In the book of Daniel, understanding cryptic language, Daniel uses weeks. In this text, Daniel chapter 9, he uses the word week, uh, week, but in our understanding today, it's years. And then half of that week, right, will be broken up into some major, as we see, emphasis on suffering. So we see that this is the tribulation period, this is seven years. And then number three, there will be three, two split periods, three and a half years between these tribulation times. And then a great Christian suffering will take place specifically on the other half of what is called the great tribulation. We see more of this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, where it says, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, And the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days, roughly around three and a half years. Now, this burnt offering, you may be asking, what is he talking about? He's talking about the sacrifice and the offering that happened in the temple of God. 
It will be taken. It will no longer be practiced. Therefore, because there will be an idol represented in its place, and therefore there's going to be a desolate uh, experience that God is no longer in there because of the abomination. Also, we see that Daniel gives us the works of the abomination of desolation, that he will make a peace covenant with Israel, as we see in Daniel 9. Number two, that he will take back this peace covenant with Israel eventually. And number three, he will defile the temple based on these idols. Now, now, how does this fit with the biblical narrative of God today? How does it fit? Well, I want us to continue to look at Daniel 11. It says, force, it says forces from him, right, the Antichrist, or the abomination of desolation shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes what? Desolate. I know there's a lot of historical understanding of the text today. And this is what it means to study the scripture the right way. Amen? I want you to see that what happens in history, okay, specifically Jewish history, there is much debate. On these specific passages of Daniel, there were other Jewish historical events in what scholars call the 400 years of silence, meaning from the book of Malachi, the last book of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to the first book of the New Testament in Matthew, there is 400 years of silence. Scholars believe God has never, meaning God did not talk to his people Israel. There is no prophetic word. There's no literature that says God said this. There's silence, but there's history that took place within those 400 years that we must adhere to and look to. Now, we don't see this as infallible literature. We see this as supportive literature of understanding the great narrative of God from Genesis to Revelation. There were these, uh, this was the time between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years. These pieces of literature are from a time of great historical events with the nation of Israel. It deals with nations who attacked and controlled Jerusalem from a time period. That time period being 160 AD to 70 AD. This is going into the first century of Anno Domino, which means the year of our Lord, meaning the birth of Jesus. Nations like Syria and a mixed Syria of Greece came and attacked Jerusalem within that 400-year span. It's not in the Bible. It's in Jewish literature. And they came and they defiled the temple of God. Therefore, everyone is believing that this moment right here is the abomination of desolation. Where Daniel prophesied. There, they, many scholars would say, and they have right to say, they have good arguments to say that this is the time that Daniel's prophecy is finally being fulfilled. And then there was a time within this time, 160, uh, 160 A.D. to 70 A.D., where a time called the Maccabean Revolt would come up. Many of you who come from Catholic backgrounds would remember this word name because in the Catholic Church, they have the book of Maccabees. We don't practice this in our text, Scripture, because we don't believe God said anything during this time. So we take on the Reformers' view of Scriptures, that it's 66 Book, but in this Maccabean era, we see a man by the name of Judah Maccabean who took over and killed the king and all these outside influence. And there was peace among Israel for a time period until Rome came involved. 
and Rome controlled Israel between these hundred plus years of conflict in this revolt. Are you with me today? And so what, what I want us to look, specifically, what, what, did they, what did they desolate this temple with? Like what did they put an idol? It was the Greek god Zeus. Both nations celebrated Zeus as their highest god authority. So they put a statue in the Lord's temple. And it was renewed for a time being until the Romans came back. So here's, here's the argument, right? Though these are great historical and accurate facts, I don't believe this was the actual tribulation. But rather a foreshadowing of one greater to come. Right, yes, though some of these events mentioned in this historical account lines up with Daniel's prophecies, one thing to understand is the time in which Jesus is speaking at this moment. Jesus is not speaking from a historical understanding. In this text, Jesus is speaking in future tense. He's talking to his disciples and telling them, when you see the abomination. He said, if you have seen the abomination of desolation, he said, when you see this Antichrist, He makes it clear that these things result into our third way of understanding the verses today. And that's Jesus addresses how his disciples should respond to the abomination of desolation. Look at these words. The words, specifically in verse 14b, you're reading on, is the word, let the reader understand. This is in connection with the book of Daniel chapter 9, where it says, a word went out. And then with Revelation chapter 1, where it says, blessed is the one who reads, and blessed is the one who hears. You see a beautiful picture of understanding this whole uh, apocalyptic prophecy based on Jesus using Scripture as his platform for his authority. In the same sense, you see specific quick words of how Jesus says his disciples should respond when they see the Antichrist. Number one, flee. We see that in verse 14. Number 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, don't turn back. Don't go back. Right? And then lastly, verse 17 and 18, something that we always neglect as a church. You ready? Pray. Pray. Don't just pray for your food. Right? Pray. Pray for this time period, right, that he's telling the disciples. Pray. Dr. Tony Evans says this, that the abomination will concede with an intense persecution of anyone who refuses to worship the beast. Those who will not bow down will have to flee, leaving their property behind if they are to escape death. So what if the abominator of desolation came into that door today? I'll tell you what would happen. Genuine Christianity will be proven who's genuine Christians and who's false converts. Are you with me? That's the harshness of the understanding of the gospel. Right? This would be much suffering, which leads us to our final point, and I want us to respond. Jesus gives his disciples vivid details of the great tribulation. In verse 19, it will be the most significant suffering For believers at that time. Such tribulation. Is it that Jesus states that the world and Christians have not seen or experienced such tribulation? This would be a different tribulation from the Maccabean revolt era. It would be not just for the Jews, but it would be a tribulation for the entire world. And this Antichrist, we see in Revelation, this Antichrist 
will, will be one of those people that you love to follow. He has everything you can think of in a world leader. He can heal people. He can do signs and wonders like Jesus has done. He can give money and prosperity, right? He can do everything. He can fight. He can, lead. He can do everything that a perfect leader can. He can be the president of the United States that we've always wished for, for on both sides, the Republican and the Democrat side. He will fool many. He will fool you. He will fool me. And he has fooled the disciples who have been spoken to in this book as we learn in history. Amen? There's a reality. This will be a different tribulation. It will be a harsh tribulation. But praise be to God that the Lord will limit this suffering for only three and a half years for those who belong to him, as we see in verse 20. It says in verse, ending of verse 20, it says, No human would have been saved unless God would have shortened the days of the tribulation. And Jesus calls these people the elect. This is a word that churches have run away from. The predestined, the elect, right? It's not like election, like how we elected a president this past year or a government leader. This election is a little different. God does not elect people based on their value. No amens in this room. Because that's what the American church has made it to be. God rescues people simply by his grace. I'll take three amens. You're going to be shocked, clients. You're going to be shocked. You get into heaven, and you see the brother down in the homestead in heaven. You're like, huh? I never knew you was a Christian. No, ultimately, that's not really going to happen. But I'm just saying, if that could happen, right? Because we're not going to think that when we're in heaven. But we're going to be shocked for those who aren't in heaven. Matthew 7 makes it clear. People said, God, did we not do this in your name? Heal the sick. Gave. Raise people from the dead. And Jesus said the words, I hope that none of you here depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, transgressions, trespasses, sinfulness. I never knew you. Get out of my face. But we play church when we want to play church. Why? Because you live in the country. Or for us Hawaiians, some of you who don't agree with this same stance, you live in a made-up country or country, whatever stance you are in Hawaii, that allows us to have freedom of religion. The problem is, though that is on the Constitution of America, it's not on the land's book of life. The Scriptures tells us that if you love God, you will be persecuted. If you love God, you will be hurt for your faith. Right now, as we have freedom of religion, we have brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia who are being attacked for their faith. Their women and children are being defiled because they follow Christ Jesus. But here we come in late to church. We come in when we feel like. We go and we do what we want, when we want, however we want, because that's the American gospel we have accepted in freedom. But what if God gave us a president that would take away that freedom? 
What if God gave us a government that takes away that religious right? What if they start with the coronavirus as a mechanism to scare people of going to church? Just saying. Will the church stand? And will the church be about the word of God? Will the church say, I don't care what the abomination of desolation says, but will they stand rightfully on the word of God? If machine guns would come into the church because we're meeting in the name of God, will the church worship God and God alone? The church of God. The one that God loves, the one that God elects, the one that God has chosen before the foundation of the earth. This church, hear me out, listen to me, will endure. And he will not endure, the church will not endure because of your efforts. The church will endure because of God's spirit in it. Jesus then reminds his disciples that as they suffer, they will rise up a rapid scale of persecution. They will, that this Antichrist will do similar signs as Jesus did. These false prophets that will rise up in verse 22. Jesus will tell us, do not trust them. Do not believe in them. They're all over the TV today. In fact, go to Netflix, if you still have Netflix, and watch the American Gospel. It will show you every false teacher that are current today and what they preach on. They will lead many astray, specifically those in the church. How do we know that? Look at the last part in verse 21. He says, and they will try to lead astray, if possible, the elect. If possible, right? I believe the writer is saying this in the name of Jesus because we believe those who are truly elect will be preserved. Here's a biblical truth, and we're almost powerful. When Jesus speaks about these horrifying events, it's not just to scare us, though I believe it is to scare us. Just want to let you know. It's also to remind us that those who truly belong to him, the elect, will remain in the faith. These events will be what separates the true Christians from the false Christians. The phrase elect, chosen is also the same way Mark used it or John used it in the book of Revelation. Look at it with me. Revelation chapter 17 says this about the elect. They will make war on the lamb. Who are they? The false teachers, the followers of the Antichrist, aka the Antichrist is not Satan. The Antichrist is a servant and vessel of Satan. Sounds like Satan's tactics, right? Satan doesn't do the dirty work, right? He, does all, he let other people do his dirty work. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Hallelujah, amen? For he is Lord of Lord, and he is King of kings. And those who with him are called and chosen, right? And what? Say that with me out loud. Faithful. There's a system of this faithfulness, right, right? It's not they're faithful, then they're chosen, and then they're called. You have to read it in that order, the way Jesus says it, right? That they are, look at that, they are called, 
And they are chosen. Therefore, the overflow and the result of this calling and this specific choice is faithfulness. Thank God it's not up to me to live faithful to you guys. Because I'm going to be honest with you. You bugger stress me out. Seven years being with every one of you. And you may say, you stress me out too, Kahu. Hallelujah. We stress each other out, right? But God, the Lamb of God, He don't stress you. He puts comfort in you. He draws you to the gospel. He draws you near with all your opala, with all your junk, with all your hakaka. He draws you near. And what God does, he does what the Antichrist cannot do. He rescues you from the inside out. He does what you cannot do, what Satan cannot do, what the Antichrist cannot do, what no church pastor can do in the city of Hilo or around the world. What God does, he does permanently. What he does in you and through you, he does for the glory of his name. Can they get glory out here? That's what he does. Tell your neighbor, hey, that's what he does. Tell your other neighbors, hey, that's what he does. Now, if your neighbor is sleeping, wake up. That's what he does. And if you can sleep with this loud mouth preacher up here, something wrong with you. I want you to see how the ESV study Bible says it. That the universal extent of tribulation is cut short by the Lord. Hallelujah. The elect, as we see in verse 20, 22, and as we'll see next week in verse 27, are not proud elite. Not professional Christians. But recipients of God's gracious and undeserved call and protection. That is the core of the gospel. Not that God loves you for something valuable. And you know, God loves you because we are undeserving. That's the gospel we must come back to in America. Anybody can walk down to the altar and it just, it's the message is just God loves you. Come here. Apart from hearing that you are a pagan, a heathen, a sinner, then that's not the gospel. You must hear as if you're going to die today with this sin and go straight to hell. That's what we must all hear. Yes, I'm only 36 years old preaching hellfire brimstone. Why? Because the gospel never changed. We don't blame the generation 100 years ago who preached the hellfire brimstone. Jesus is preaching it right now. Culture does not define our theology. Jesus does. So what's the point? (laughs) What's the point of this Christmas sign of the abomination of desolation as we exegete our text today? Here's really two answers to it. First off, the pattern. The abomination of desolation defiles the things of God. I want to stay there. I want you to meditate on these words. That the abomination, the antichrist, the desolator, defiles the things of God. This is where now we can take away from this text that now God is speaking to us now. Are you with me? You see what we just did? We looked at a proper understanding of the verse for itself, the way God gave it to us in the time that it was written. But now the word of God is transparent and transformational and transactional. So we're in the part of this verse where everything that we're learning in these verses is now being transactioned 2,000 years later 
to us Pupuli Hawaiians. <laughs> Crazy people. And God in His sovereignty is teaching us about this abominator that He will defile the things of God. Think of the things that God defiles, that, that God says that this guy defiles. He defiles the church. How do I know that? We no longer make church a priority. I'm not talking about Sunday gatherings. I'm talking about the body of Christ. We don't make it a priority. I thank God that my mother dragged me to church growing up. Because if there's anybody that needed church, it was this Hawaiian right here. And I still need God. But how can we say we love God and we don't love his church? But when he comes back, as we're going to see in Revelation, he's coming back for his church. The called out ones, the one who gathers. Now, this looked different for some of us in this season. We get together at houses, and, and that's beautiful. I'm not saying. But there is Christian who has completely excommuted himself from any sort of gathering. Listen to me. God loves his church. He loves his church so much that he calls his church to his church, to those who are the elect, those who belong to him. Therefore, listen to this win. I want you to hear this win. We see the pattern. Look at this promise. Though the abomination of desolation will defile the things of God, remember this, the abomination of desolation will ultimately be destroyed by God once for, help me out, Oh, can I get an amen in this room, right? Second Thessalonians revealed this to us. And then the lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus, this is the Jesus nobody understands, right? Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my lover bee, right? Watch this Jesus, Hawaiians. Whom the, who the Lord Jesus will what? Kill with breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I want you to see how baller Jesus is in this text. How gangster he is in this text. A sword does not touch the Antichrist. A bullet is not shot from his hands into this Antichrist. Jesus destroys this abominator the way he beautifully created this world with his breath. And Jesus is redeeming his world to the breath of his son on the cross. So finally, how should we respond? Look at verse 23. You ready? But be on guard. Thank God that our action steps come straight from the scriptures. Be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. What does this look like? There's a thing called a shield in Ephesians 6. And it represents the doctrine of faith. The shield of faith teaches us that God gives us the gift of faith, like Christmas, a gift, right? 
to be on guard. And then Jesus has the audacity to emphasize that this is not the first time I'm telling you this. How do we know? Read on in the text. He says, I have told you all things, what? Beforehand. Here's my hopes. This is what I hope you take away today. That you study the scriptures the way God gave it to us. I can promise you, I can go online in Hilo and look at all of these personality of ministers in Hilo that may be good people and great people. And a few of them would miss one great point of the scripture. You guys ready? It's not about you. It's about God. Therefore, there will be preachers today talking about Daniel like I have and start saying, why don't you just be the Daniel? Why don't you just be the the David and kill Goliath? Why don't you just be the Gideon and take your small little army and slay the Philistines? Why don't you be this? Listen to me. You're not the hero of this story. Jesus is. Your part in this story is to humbly prostrate before a holy God and tell God, I am just a man, a man of weakness. But God, I know your son is a God of sorrow who has taken on the flesh of this world, God with us, so that in him, those who believe in him will have everlasting life, and that by believing in him, we would see our need for him continuously. Not that I just got saved today in an eventful moment, and then I'm good, I've got a a ticket out of hell and a ticket into heaven. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, man, I have defiled a holy God, and by his grace and mercy, he has loved me from where I'm at in my junk. Therefore, Upon repentance, asking God for forgiveness, and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can move forward to be on guard. Don't trust me. Trust the scriptures. Don't trust the televangelists. Trust the scriptures. Don't trust the famous conservative, reformed, theological professors of the academia. Trust the scriptures. Why? The scripture is not just the written word. The scriptures point to the living word. His name is Jesus. Be on guard. I've told you this before. Be on guard. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, we come to you this morning. Knowing that everything, everything that we see, that we are a part of, is a beautiful testament of your epic narrative from beginning to end. And God, if there's anything that we take away from this text today, is that first off, we have identified who the abominator is, the servant of Satan, but also who our great and mighty warrior is, who is Jesus if there's anyone in this room that don't know you as Lord and Savior, reveal that to them. God, we love you. We need you. You are good. 
You are worth everything. And you are worthy to be praised. Lord, I would be concerned if nobody caught feelings in this message today. But in some way, by your grace and mercy, we've all been convicted and convinced by these scriptures. That you, that you have squashed our pride, our arrogance, our idolatry. But in the same sense, by your grace and your faithfulness, you have lifted, lifted us up. Lord, even as we prepare for Christmas, may we be reminded that Christmas, though it starts with this beautiful baby boy, born in a manger, it continued on through his ministry, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his ascension, and until his return. And until he returns, God, may we be on guard and remember the words of Jesus. I will return. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord, quickly. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And God's ohana says loud and proud.